Well, anyhow, welcome. Glad you're here. Um, Rush Jolly is our speaker tonight. Rush is this gentleman right here. He's 39 years of age, and his bio is very short because he's going to tell you all about himself. He is a man in long-term recovery after years of being institutionalized through various mental health and substance abuse challenges. Rush found recovery through the 12 steps and a personal relationship with God. Today, he lives free from the chains of addiction. He has had the pleasure of working in the treatment industry now for over four years, and he's passionate about serving that community that is still in suffering. It's an absolute honor and one of the gifts of sobriety that Rush has stated. So I'm going to pray for you, Rush, and then welcome you to the podium. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for Rush and uh, for the encounter that he had with you, Lord, many years ago, and how you've transformed and changed his life, God. And we just pray you continue to bless him and his sobriety, the work of his hands, the ministry that you've entrusted to his care. We pray tonight that you will speak through him in a mighty way and leave us with words of hope and encouragement. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Welcome, Rush. Thank you, John. Hey, everyone. John Fair, thank you guys so much for asking me to be here. Um, so I know that there's a lot of people in this room whose lives have been affected by people that have struggled with addiction, either indirectly or, or directly. Um, you know, my intention for tonight is to hopefully just offer a little bit of hope, you know. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly, you know, special about my story, Um I say that, you know, being somebody who's been clean and sober for, I guess, over 13 years now. Um, so I've heard, <laughs> I mean, I've heard it all. Literally, I've heard it all from working in the field of addiction and just kind of seeing the insanity and the chaos that walks through those doors to, you know, some of the best friends that I've ever had in my life that have walked through the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and I've got to see them come in just absolute train wrecks and uh, and completely transform them trans, transform their lives um, you know I don't I don't think that that I did anything special um, and and the reason I say that is is because uh, partly of what I just mentioned that I've seen countless people you know walk in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and for whatever reason they didn't make it um, and I'm convinced now that it is truly God's grace, the ones that do make it. Um, because if you suffer from the disease of addiction like I did, um, I mean, there there is just no control. You know, I just I had no control over the actions that I took, the behaviors that I particip- participated in. Um, you know, I look back and it it is so clear to me that I never wanted to steal from my family, that I never wanted to. Um, hurt my friends. I, I never wanted to do 99% of the things that I did. Um, but there I was, continuing to choose that um, you know, way of life. So, um, you know, John kind of gave you guys the, the brief you know, kind of summary of, of uh, you know, what my life has been like. Um, um, I grew up in <laughs> what I call a, a perfectly normal alcoholic home. <laughs> um, you know, dad was an alcoholic, mom was an alcoholic. 
my brother was uh, was the the poster child. Um, you know, he was the guy that that got saved at a very early age. You know, I think he was like thirteen or fourteen years old, and he was going to church. And he wasn't just going to church. I mean, he was going to church on Wednesdays. He's going on Sundays. He was going to the weekend retreats. He was doing all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, he was the guy who got a scholarship to Georgia Tech. Um, you know, and and I was the I was the kid that could run fast. <laughs> you know, I mean that's that's that was my life growing up was just you know athletics. I mean, I just I love playing outside. I love playing football, baseball. Um, got involved in soccer at a pretty pretty early age and learned that I was pretty good at that. Went on a traveling team, did that for a number of years. Um, and those are some of the best memories of my life. Um, they are few and far between, though. And I'm not sure what to attribute that to. I'll get to that a little bit later on. But, you know, I say all that just to say that I had very few memories growing up. Um, I can tell you guys the, the memory that sticks out the most in my mind from, from my youth. And that was uh, after my parents had divorced. Um, it was probably around 1991, I believe, possibly 92. You know, so at this point I'm you know, 10 years old, um, and, uh, and we're in a new house with no furniture in it, and I look around, and it just seems so foreign to me. It was just, there was nothing familiar about this new place. You know, my dad was gone. Um, I think my brother and my mom were in other rooms, but I remember laying down on the floor in that house in what would become my room and looking around and just thinking, this is not right. You know, and just feeling very, very lonely, you know. Um, it's, it's really been difficult to go back and, and think about some of these memories that I do have. Um, here recently, I've gotten involved in therapy, and I think it has... I mean, my experience, you know, from, from active addiction to transitioning to, to sobriety was very, very powerful, okay? So I've always been a crier, <laughs> you know, especially when I get up here in front of a group of people and I'm, I'm talking about my experiences. So there's definitely going to be some times where I'm probably going to have to pause and just, you know, kind of pump the brakes a little bit. Um, but here recently, um, I have been... I guess challenged to kind of you know talk about some of these you know these memories that I've had, um, and also my intention is you know before I before I end this you know this talk tonight to share with you guys the importance of therapy, um, and not just you know working the twelve steps, not just going to church, not just doing the things that a lot of people do, you know, but there's no shame in us needing to talk to a professional, you know, and, and I do want to make that point, so I'll get a little bit uh, more in-depth in that a little bit later on. Um, so, yeah, so that was the first memory, um, and uh, I took my first drink when I was six years old. Uh, I was at a wedding. I didn't even know it was alcohol, um, but ended up continuing to drink. Um, I got drunk and passed out behind the couch, and uh you know, and that, that kind of sticks out in my mind for obvious reasons. The first time that I ever put alcohol in my body, I, I don't know if the physical allergy kicked in. Um, I'm sure most of the people in this room are familiar with what the physical allergy is. 
you know when somebody suffers from addiction i mean that's what that's what happens that's what makes us different you know you take the the normal drinker you know you can go to longhorns and you can have a glass of wine you can go home you can go to bed by 10 p.m. You can wake up at 7 a.m. You can go to work the next day. The alcoholic, that's not how, that's not how it works. You know, it goes on our bodies, and, and it sets off a physical allergy, and we literally cannot stop putting it, putting it in our bodies. So I'm not sure if that's what happened then, but I do remember um, really en- enjoying that sensation that I felt you know, at that time. Um, I, uh, I went to my first mental institution when I was 12 years old. Um, mainly just my behavior was just completely out of control. Um, my family didn't know what was going on with me. Um, I think looking back, I think it probably had a whole lot to do with the divorce and just that, that very, very lonely, foreign um, uh, feeling that I had, you know, that I, that I shared with you guys when I was, you know, in that house that that empty house at that time. Um, I was put on a lot of medication at a very early age. Um, I had what they call an attention deficit disorder. And um, so I was taking a lot of Ritalin. I was also on a mood stabilizer of some kind, um, like Prozac or Effexor, something of that nature. Um, And then I get to you know, the, the mental institution, which I think at the time was, was uh, it was called Charter Peachford Hospital, you know, which is now known as just Peachford Hospital. Um, and I stayed there for about 90 days, all right? And so that's, that in itself, I think, was a pretty traumatic experience for me, you know, just being away from a, a normal life that, that, you know, 12-year-olds, I mean, they just, nobody, who goes to a, a mental institution for 90 days at the age of 12? Right, so there's already kind of this sense of like I'm different, like what's wrong with me, you know. Um, ended up going to Ridgeview the next year uh, for another 90 days. Um, I started drinking um, pretty early, probably around the age of 12 or 13. I became addicted to uh, some of the medications that I was taking. So Ritalin is an amphetamine. Um, and so I was crushing Ritalin up and I was snorting it at the age of 12, 13, 14 years old um, to the point to where I was staying up for 48, 72 hours at a time, you know, at a very early age. Um, at the time, I think my mom was really struggling with the divorce. She was really struggling with being a single parent. My dad had met a woman and had moved out to uh, Conyers, Georgia. So he wasn't around a whole lot, but we would spend some time with him on, on the weekends from time to time. When we were um, at home, which was in Lawrenceville, you know, about 45 minutes away from here, um, my mom, as I mentioned before, was, was in active alcoholism. And she would get home from work. She was a felony probation officer for, for Gwinnett County, by the way. She would get home from work about 4 p.m. And, uh, and she would be pretty much trashed by the time at about 6 p.m., which gave me free reign to, you know, run the neighborhood and, and basically just do whatever it is that I, w- that I wanted to do. Um, if that meant snorting my Ritalin, if that meant going to, to her bathroom and, you know, finding the alcohol that was hidden under the cabinet, um, you know, then that's what I did, you know. So, so that's what life looked like at, at a very early age. 
Went to my first treatment center when I was 14. It was called Atlanta Insight. Um, and uh, I was in that treatment center for about three and a half years. It took me 14 months to get 30 days clean. Um, it, there just wasn't enough pain and suffering at that point, you know. Um, I just I had a lot more uh, drinking and using to, to, to do at that point. And I, I think that I was pretty much forced into that situation, you know, going to that rehabilitation program. Um, but eventually I started to kind of buy in. Um, <clears throat> the consequences started to set in of, of my uh, my actions. And somewhere along the way, I, I think I was just young and impressionable. And, uh, and there were people around me that were, you know, on fire for sobriety, you know, and wanted to, to live a different life and didn't want to continue doing the things that, you know, most of us in that, in that program were doing. So eventually I fell in line and ended up putting together about, I think about a year and a half clean. Um, and, uh, you know, at the time, I, th- I think at some point my mom and, and my father, after my father's divorce from, you know, the, the lady that he was with, uh, ended up trying to, to work things out, you know, so they got back together at some point. Um, in this three and a half year year stretch was was really really strange to me. That was just a whole other thing. But um, I wasn't living at home at the time. You know, I was 16, 17 years old, but I was living with people in that program. Um, and I was out of high school. You know, so high school was was pretty much a done deal at that point. I would later go back and, and get my GED, but um, you know that that program was had a had a lot of very strange beliefs. They just believed that. You know, work and school were not important. That you just needed to to kind of hang out with your friends and and just focus on sobriety. You know, and that and that was it. So that's what we we would do. And somehow they had just had all the parents that had bought into this too. You know, so we had you know a few years where we just didn't do a whole lot. You know, we just kind of lived off of of our parents, and so there was nobody that was really self supporting. Um, you know, in that program and. Uh, you know, that only lasted for so long. I ended up leaving that program, um, I guess, when I was about 17 and a half years old after a couple of relapses and ended up going back to live with my parents and, uh, and you know, stayed with them for a period of time, ended up getting a job at a, a local car dealership. And, uh, and, and coming out of that program was a very, very... Um, foreign experience for me just because it's almost like that program was like a bubble you know um you didn't have a whole lot of contact with the outside world it was all I knew um so when I left that program I just felt very exposed you know I felt like I didn't know how to form relationships with 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 new people um I felt like I just had absolutely no idea how to talk to girls my age, um, and honestly, I think the only thing that I that I knew at that point that would you know fix that that issue there was was to get comfortable in my own skin, and um, and I remembered what did that for me, you know, and so it wasn't you know too far down the road before you know alcohol and, and other substances became a, a more regular part of my life again. Um, I think about a year down the road, I was introduced to methamphetamine for the first time. And while methamphetamine was not my drug of choice, um, 
my drug of choice was uh, was Oxycontin or any kind of opiate for that matter. That's that's what gave me the most peace, you know. That's what gave me the most freedom, you know, that, that internal freedom that I was looking for. Um, meth was just so chaotic. But, um, you know, I tell this story just because I feel like it, it describes meth, meth perfectly. The first time I did meth, I absolutely hated it. And I promised that I, that I just was never going to do that again. And then six months later, I woke up, and I was 40 pounds lighter, and I hadn't seen my family in six months. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and my life was just in absolute shambles, you know. And so while that wasn't my drug of choice, that is what took me to to, to my bottom, you know. Um, I ended up being um, um, involved in some things that I just, you know, I just didn't even know existed, you know. I mean, you're when you're 18, 19 years old, and 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 you first enter that life. Um, you know, it starts off as, as pretty fun and exciting and you're meeting new people and you're staying up at all hours of the night and, you know, you don't have a job and, and, and excitement is just kind of second nature to that. Um, but what you don't know is you have no idea, you know, where it's about to lead you, you know, and some of the things that you're about to, about to witness. Um, you know, and, that, and that's what happened to me. I mean, I was living in hotel rooms. Um, I started, um, you know, selling methamphetamine to support my habit. Um, at some point along the way, um, I was at a gas station, and I was set up by a confidential informant um, to sell somebody a, mag- a bag of methamphetamine and uh, ended up getting caught. And to avoid the drug charge... I actually swallowed, you know, the bag of meth. And the bag came open in my stomach, and um, I guess it was on the way to to the jail. And so I was immediately transported to Gwinnett Medical Center, and I woke up two to three days later, shackled to a bed, um, and just had no idea what had happened. Um, And But I had a a pretty powerful experience that, you know, that day when I woke up because I was... Obviously shackled to a bed, I had no idea what had just taken place. I didn't have any really memory of, of even, even being set up by the confidential informant in the first place. But there was a police officer in the room, and we got to talking a little bit, and one of the things that he said to me was is that, you know, you're just one of the ones that just happened to wake up. You know, and I, and I kind of had a moment there where I was like, you know what, he's right. You know, I'm very lucky. You know, after he had just kind of shared with me the reality of what had just taken place. You know, and I was, I was lucky. You know, um, so I ended up going to uh, jail for I guess about eight and a half months that particular time, um, and uh, my dad had gotten sober, you know, many years years prior, and I I knew that there was kind of it was kind of in the back of my mind that Alcoholics Anonymous might be an option for me, you know, that might be if things get bad enough. <laughs> Only if they get bad enough, maybe I'll, I'll wind up, you know, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, you know. And those were the thoughts that I was having around this particular, to- uh, this particular time. Um, I remember calling my dad from jail and communicating to him that I had a desire to, you know, to stay clean when I got out of jail. And, uh, 
And so when I got out, <clears throat> I, uh, I think I just made a decision that I was going to, uh, you know, to give it a shot, you know, and that I was going to, um, I was going to try this whole AA thing out, you know, and, um, so I went to go live with my father and, um, somebody that he was living with because at that time my parents had split again. Um, again, the whole family dynamic, you know, growing up and then throughout my teens was just very, very chaotic and dysfunctional. Um, but to me, it was nothing new, you know? I mean, I was just, oh, oh, so we're doing this again. Okay, sure, let's just go that direction. You know, it's just no big deal. It's just all, the only thing that we had ever known. And when I say we, I mean my brother and I, you know? So, um, so I did that, and I started, you know, going to some meetings, and, uh, and something really cool happened because I showed up to, to a meeting... And there was a guy named Nick, and there was a guy named Ross, and those guys took me under their wing the first meeting, and uh, and basically just said, hey man, come with us. And it had been a long time since anybody had said that to me, you know. Um, and I say that just because, you know, the, the, the life... Of somebody that, that is that it's that's addicted to you know to meth, just the the lifestyle that you take on, you know, while you're out there living in the streets, um, you know, basically homeless. Your family wants nothing to do with you. You know, they're done. They've washed their hands of it. They've had enough. Um, it's it's very emotional to think back you know, to that particular time and just thinking that there were people that, that wanted me to come with them, you know. Um, I had just become this unbelievable, just incredible liar and cheater and thief. Um, and, uh, and so that was a special time, you know, and those were friendships that I made that, you know, that day um, that I'll never forget. You know, those guys became lifelong friends. You know, um, I still talk to one of them today. Um, and uh, so that being said, um, you know, I ended up getting a sponsor. I ended up, you know, starting to work the steps. Um, I remember sitting in a 12-step meeting, and I remember looking up on the wall. You know, they have the 12 traditions, and they have the 12 steps, you know, on the other side of the wall. And... Uh, and I remember looking at steps four and five and being absolutely terrified, you know. And, and four is where you, you know, make a personal inventory, you know, of, of your life, essentially, you know. Um, and it's a resentment inventory, you know. And then the fifth step is when you actually sit down with somebody who has worked all 12 steps and you, and you share that inventory, you know, with them. Um, and then step eight is when you make a list of all the people that you've harmed, and step nine is, is you actually have to go back out into the world, all right? <laughs> and you got to go face these people, the countless people that I've stolen from, you know, that I have just done some, some pretty awful things to. So, so both of those, those steps there were, were terrifying to me. Um, and uh, luckily I had a sponsor that had, you know, a whole lot of time sober, and he had a lot of experience, 
and most of all, he had a personal relationship with God. And that was the thing that was really, really attractive to me. You know, part of what I have not mentioned up to this point is, um, is my relationship with God or my resistance to God, I should say. Um, cause that was really the only thing that I ever knew. I mean, when it, when it came to, you know, the church or a relationship with God at that time, um, you know, pretty early on, my, my brother had taken me to, to church with him, I think around the age of 12. And, uh, and I remember getting saved. You know, I remember buying in and just saying, okay, um, you know, I, I, can, I can believe this. I can believe this story, you know, that they're telling me. Um, but there was no personal relationship there, you know. It was really just kind of me giving my life over to Christ, um, but not backing it up in any way, shape, or form. Um, and, you know, I say that just to say this. I also remember struggling at that particular time in my life and going to church on Sunday mornings and walking into a Southern Baptist church in Lawrenceville, Georgia and hearing the preacher say that if I did A, B, and C that I was going to burn in hell, you know? And I remember sitting in the back of that church and just thinking, okay, that's it. I'm not going to do A, B, and C today. I'm just not going to do it. And making promises to God and by 5 p.m. I had broken every single promise. And so my mind, I wasn't good enough for God, you know. God didn't want me, and I didn't want God. You know, I, I wanted no part of this, this thing that people did in the church. Um, I just thought it was a bunch of judgment, and I thought it was a bunch of BS, you know. So from a very early age, I had a lot of resistance to religion. I knew that God was real. I knew uh, coming into Alcoholics Anonymous based on the, the miracles that I had seen um, that that there was something to the 12-step process, okay? Because the whole point of the 12-step process is to give you access to power, okay? Because if you look at the first step, what's the problem? The problem is is that we don't have the power to do the, to not do the things that, that we've done for a very long time, right? So if that's the problem, then what's the solution? Well, we've got to find a power, all right? Um, the 12 steps is access to that power, you know? And that's what I have found to be true in my own experience. Um, that's what I was told very early on when I went through the 12-step uh, the process. Um, but I, I never fully trusted, you know, that, that God had me, you know. When people explained it to me logically, when I would sit, sit in meetings, like I heard what they were saying when they talked about the third step, and turning our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him, um, I didn't know how to do that. Um, and you know, back to you know coming into to the meeting and looking up on the wall and being really, really intimidated and downright terrified of doing steps four, five, eight, and nine. Um, when I got to the eighth step. <clears throat> and I started making the list. Um, I was unwilling to go back out into the world and, and to make some of those amends. Specifically, there was one guy who um, had, in my mind, had, had done my father pretty wrong. He rented a room to my father. Um, it was sometime after 9-11, and the economy had you know, completely just gone downhill. 
And, uh, and so my father was struggling to find work, and this man had kicked him out. And, you know, at the time I was, I was hard up and going through withdrawals, and I mean, I just didn't care. Somebody was going to get something stolen from them. I just didn't know who it was. And for some reason, this guy popped up in my mind, you know, that he had kind of done my father wrong. And so I went out to his house and I broke into his house and I stole anything and everything that had any kind of value, you know. And I took it to the pawn shop and I took it to the drug dealer and, uh, and I got my fix and I forgot about it, you know. And, uh, and it came to mind as I was, you know, going through this 12-step process that this is going to be, you know, somebody that I'm going to have to face one day, you know. But I wasn't willing to do it, and I'm so grateful that I found a sponsor that, you know, didn't let me let fear run my life because it turned out to be one of the most powerful experiences that I've ever had in my life. Um, It turned out to be an opportunity for God to show what He's truly capable of. You know, um, and I think that it was the start of a personal relationship, or maybe not the start of a personal relationship, but I believe that it was the start um, of the belief that I can have a personal relationship, you know, with God. Um, so he convinced me that I needed to go out there and, and face this man and, and tell him what I had done. I had managed to, to save up, um, I think, about $1,100 or something. Um, and so I stuck it in an envelope and I put it in my back pocket and, uh, and I was scared to death and I drove out to his house in my 1994 Plymouth Acclaim and uh, you know it's so funny because I I don't even know how I remembered how to get there you know it's it, it's almost like I wasn't even driving the car um but I drove out there that day, and I pulled into the driveway. I didn't know if the man would be home. And I pulled up, and I got out, and I walked up to the door, and I knocked on the door, and he answered. And I said, my name is Russ Jolly. I'm Steve Jolly's son. I broke into your house a couple of years ago, and I'm here to pay you back the money that I stole from you. And uh, so I handed him him the envelope, and he takes the envelope, and he peels off $300 and he puts it in his pocket. And he says, this should cover, um, you know, the insurance, you know, that went up as a result of you doing that. But I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And you're going to need this more than I am. And he handed it back to me. And, uh, I mean, I didn't care about the money. But I just knew when my sponsor told me to trust him. Not that he knew what was going to happen, but just that he knew something powerful was going to take place. And uh, I've done a lot of good drugs in my life. And the, the feeling that I had leaving that house that day was better than any dope I have ever put in my body. Um... And it was the start of something. It was the start of, as I mentioned before, it was the start of, of the belief that there is a relationship to be had with God and that He loves us and that He wants us to trust Him. And, uh, and it was awesome, you know. 
It was great. Um, I continued to make the rest of the, the, uh, the amends on that list. I started sponsoring people. I met a girl. I bought a house. Um, I got a, a really good job that at, at the time I really loved. I was a land surveyor, and I loved being outside, and I loved um, just being out in nature and just having that as a as a you know a career. I think at the time I was maybe 25 years old or something. Um, you know, and life was good, and I just had some of the best friends that I could ever dream of having. Um, for the first time ever, there was you know some semblance of stability in my life. You know, I mean, growing up and just kind of looking at that family dynamic, and just looking at the past several years, and just the mental institutions and the rehabilitation centers and the detox centers and the trips to the hospital and the living on the street, the getting beaten with baseball bats, stealing cars. I mean, just all the stuff that had taken place in my life, and I'm I'm finally at a place to where I'm. I'm starting to kind of build something, you know. Um, and and guys, I think what I did is I think I started to take credit, you know, for for what was happening in my life, because um, the stability it had nothing to do with me, you know. I think it had everything to do with me fo- following the guidance and direction of people that have gone before me, and that had experience with how to stay clean long term. And had experience with how to how to maintain a personal relationship with God, and how to maintain relationships with um, with other people who have relationships with God. Um, and uh, I know that some dishonesty started to take place in my life. Um, I started to experience some shame and embarrassment around some of the behaviors that I was participating in, and. I think the most dangerous thing that, that, that an addict or an alcoholic can do is keep those secrets. I really do. Because I, it's inevitable. We're going to do some really, really dumb things along the way. There's no doubt about it. We're going to make some mistakes. Probably going to get fired from some jobs. We're going to smart off to a boss. We're going to smart off to somebody. Um, we're going to do some dumb stuff along the way. Okay? And I'm not sure what's more dangerous, you know, the, the, the bad behavior or the lying about the bad behavior, you know. Um, I ended up going back out after being sober for about four and a half years. And just when I thought I, I had seen it all and that it could not, there's no way it could get any worse, it got so much worse. And somehow I managed to stay out there living on the streets for another two years. Um, Ended up catching another drug charge, uh, possession of methamphetamine, and uh, possession of controlled substance. At the time, it was fentanyl patches. Um, and uh, just running with a rough crowd. And um, But I'll never forget you know, that, that feeling that I had when my back hit the back of that cop car. It was almost like I breathed a sigh of relief that it was finally over, you know? Because I knew I didn't want to live that life, and I knew it was possible. Because I had a taste of what was possible, like through sobriety and through a relationship with God, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and so, I uh, I decided that 
if they let me out of there, that I was going to come back um, to AA and I was going to give my life to this thing and I was going to dive in and, uh, and I was going to figure out what happened and I was going to correct the problem. And I remember calling a guy named Daniel who uh, was a guy who tried to save me from going back out a couple years prior. You know, he kind of saw the writing on the wall. He started to see some of the behaviors that I was, you know, just me just acting a little off. And he was like, okay, this kid's about to blow it. <laughs> Let me just try to save him real quick. And it didn't work. But I remembered that, and I called him. And I'll never forget it because he showed up to the jail every single week with a big book, you know. And, uh, and we started to work the steps while I was in jail. You know, and I will be eternally grateful to that man um, for making that sacrifice, you know. And uh, it's one of the things that I remember today, <clears throat> you know. Um, you know, life is so different today. Life is, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, it's hard to explain, but you know, 13 years of sobriety, 13 years of not living that life, it's almost hard to even believe that that was my life. It's, it's a different life, you know? It's hard, to, it's hard to imagine me, you know, out there acting that way, you know? It's hard for me to imagine having, having that kind of relationship with my family, you know? And just being that removed from reality, you know that um, that I just continue to, to to act that way, you know, and to choose the things that I was choosing. Um, one of the things that helps me more than anything today, you know, and that has helped me over the last thirteen years is no matter what, it is my job, it is my my duty as somebody who was taken through those twelve steps and whose life was completely transformed as a result of those 12 steps, it is my duty to take other people through those 12 steps. Um, and it's one of the things that keeps it fresh for me. You know, So I still sponsor people today. I've always sponsored people. Um, if I wasn't sponsoring somebody, then I was going to a clubhouse somewhere and I was you know, looking for, actively looking for somebody to take through the 12 steps. Um, another thing that has really made a huge impact on my sobriety this time. It's just the complete unwillingness to lie about anything. I just won't do it. I won't. I will not lie about anything. And that's. It doesn't matter what it, what it is. Um, you know, it could have been. I, I got fired from a job. I think it probably two two and a half years sober. Um, and it was a really strange time, and that was this time. You know, you would think at two and a half years sober, I'd be starting to get my, my life together, and I wouldn't be acting like that. It's just not always the case, you know. Um, you know, I think this recovery journey, I think it's a process. <clears throat> I still struggle with anger today. It happens. I don't freak out in traffic anymore. <laughs> I don't get out at red lights. That does not happen. I don't yell at people. Um, I have I have different tools of, of dealing with um, you know the the inevitable shortcomings that we all are faced with, um, but it 
a year and a half or two and a half years sober, I was a completely different human being then, you know. And uh, and I'll never forget the the shame and the embarrassment that I had leaving work that day, you know, knowing that I had just, you know, screamed at my boss in front of eight other employees, <laughs> you know. And, and I knew it was going to happen. And the last thing in the world I wanted to do was pick up that phone and call my sponsor and let him know, this really, really stupid thing that I had just done. But it was one of the first things I did because I didn't know what to do, you know. Um, There's been some other times, you know, over the past 13 years that I've done some really, really dumb things that I haven't been proud of. And I'm just, again, I'm just unwilling to lie about those things. You know, the honesty piece is so, so important. When I look back to you know, to the relapse, relapse that took place, you know, after the, four, the first four and a half years of sobriety. I think uh, one of the things that I noticed that was when I bought that house with the girlfriend, um, I don't think I even brought it up to my sponsor that I had purchased, purchased that house until after we moved in, you know. Excuse me. Um, that's a pretty big step to take without any kind of guidance and direction, you know, um, especially from a young kid. You know, at the time I was 25 years old, you know. I needed that guidance and direction. And here's the truth. I'm 39 now, and I still need that guidance and direction. You know, I still have people in my life that know everything. They know everything that's going on in my life. There are no secrets. Um, they know when I'm about to make a big change at work. They know when I'm... Um, about to buy a house they know when I'm about to to go purchase a car and and it's not even a thing of like you know I'm calling people and asking permission it's just a thing of I'm I'm making the conscious decision to include other people in on my life you know in the decisions that I make on a daily basis that's it um and I think that I need that you know uh I think a lot of us need that you know um you know, the past couple of years has been has been pretty wild, I think, for, for everybody. Um, 2020 was certainly a crazy time, and I don't think any of us saw that coming. Um, you know, I went from, you know, pounding the pavement, working for, you know, this place called Good Landing, and uh, just traveling around and trying to present our program to as many people as, as possible that would listen. Um to just being completely halted, you know, like the rest of the world and not having that as an option and working from home, you know, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, I think it was a a really difficult time uh, for a lot of people. Um, It was a pretty difficult time for me. It was a pretty difficult transition. Um, I'd also just ended a relationship, you know, that I was in with a girl, um, uh, a few months prior, and that was a, a pretty difficult relationship to go through. Um, the whole relationship, not just the breakup. <laughs> um, you know, relationships have, have been have been a challenging thing for me. Um, I think that it has a lot to do with my relationship with my mom, um, or lack thereof. You know, from a very early age, um, I've started to notice some of these things, some of the patterns that I have. Um, this kind of avoidant um, way that I show up in these in these relationships, and my unwillingness to 
to really give my all, you know, and to stick with something, um, regardless of how difficult it is, you know. And <clears throat> on some level, I think it's motivated me to, to get out there and, and to try to investigate what that's about, um, to figure out, where to, like, where do we go from here? You know, one day I'd like to, I'd like to meet a woman, you know, that I can connect with um, and possibly even have a family with. And that has not happened up to, up to this point, you know. Um, I was in another relationship with a girl um, that ended after about six years, and that was probably one of the most devastating things that I've, I've ever been through, uh, including getting sober, you know. Just the pain, the, the physical reaction that I had to that relationship ending, you know, suddenly was, was, uh, was traumatic, to say the least. You know, and that happened in, in sobriety. You know, I think it was, it, that relationship ended uh, around the eight-year mark, you know. Um, so I say all that just to say that um, I've started uh, seeing a trauma therapist uh, about three months ago. And my plan is to continue doing that, um, not just to investigate what's going on in the relationships, but also to um, to investigate um, you know some of the issues that I have with um, you know the whole fam- family dynamic. And <clears throat> you know, back in 2017, I-, I think you guys remember the story that I told about the guy you know, Nick and Ross, it kind of took me under the wing. Um, you know, there was a guy named Ross Chapman who, you know, would, would go on to become my best friend. And, and we did everything together. I and mean, we went camping together, camping together. We, we would go on, you know, different trips together. We got sober together. Um, we would go to meetings together. And, uh, and he started struggling with, uh, with sobriety, I guess around like, probably like year six or seven, you know, of him being clean and sober. And, um, and unfortunately, we had to bury him um, in 2017. And that was, that was one of the best guys I've ever known. You know, and it was a really difficult thing to go through. Um, and uh, I'm very passionate about mental health. I'm very passionate about people that struggle with... Um, anxiety and depression um, it motivates me to to want to look at myself a little deeper you know and uh, if that means going to see a therapist then um, then so be it if that means you know meeting with people that, that have been where where I've been and have gotten through that then you know I think that that's a really really positive thing to do as well um, you know, my plan moving forward is to is to continue down that path, and to see, you know, what I can what I can find um, as a result of you know participating in in, in therapy. Um, I'm really grateful for the life that I live today. You know, when I look back, you know. Just like, you know, when you, when you look at active addiction, there's nothing logical or rational about a- active addiction. Like, none of it makes sense, you know. I never wanted to do the things that I did, yet 
I mean, I just continue to do those things over and over and over again, you know? And when I look at recovery and I look at the past 13 years and I look at my life and the person that I was when I walked in the doors of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, there's, there's nothing logical or, or rational about, you know, looking at that person that walked through the door to the person that I am today, you know? And, and I've done a lot of really difficult things um, I did go through that 12-step process. I do make it a point to, to sponsor people and to continue taking people through that, you know, through that process as well. Um, I have, uh, I continue to work the 12 steps. I continue to look at myself um, through therapy. Um, my relationship with God is everything today. The way I wake up every day is, um, I think it has a lot to do with the reason why I'm still clean and sober today. You know, um, I talk to God every single morning, every single night. I talk to God on the way here today. You know, I asked Him for His guidance and His, his direction. If there was somebody in this room here tonight that needed to hear something, I prayed that I prayed that He would speak the words through me, that He would use me. Um, I pray often that He will show me ways to serve. Um, and why? Because I'll serve the wrong things. <laughs> you know, I just will. You know, but if he'll show me the opportunities, the ways in which I can be of maximum service, then I think I have a whole lot, whole lot better chance at, at serving people. You know, at the end of the day, I think that it's, that's what it's all about. You know, um, I have a tendency just to be a very, very self-centered individual. Um, the only way that I know to not make it about me is, is to make it about you guys, to find a way to serve you guys on some level. Um, and I think that needs to happen in my personal life um, as well as in my professional life. Um, it is, it, it's a privilege to, to be able to talk to families and to talk to the clients that are trying to, to find freedom from, from addiction on a daily basis. It really is. Um, I have my days. <laughs> You know, I have my days where I'm dealing with a, a really difficult family, you know, ones that just won't listen to anything. And, and honestly, and I'll say this, you know, and, and, and this is not meant to, to offend anybody in this room because I think we've probably all enabled somebody on some level. But a lot of times when I'm dealing with families and, and, and the individuals that actually need to go into a program that are suffering from addiction, a lot of times the families are just as sick as the client, you know, and they, just, they don't even know it. They have no idea, you know. I don't think that it's my job to tell them that, though. <laughs> you know, I think it's my job to pray for them. You know, I think it's my job to pray for them and to have compassion and to have love and to and to serve them. You know, I think that that's that's why I'm in the role that I that I'm in. Um, so I will continue to do those things. Um, you know, I look at some of the jobs that I've had over the years. My first job in sobriety was working at a car wash. You know, and then I worked at a restaurant. I was the worst server you could possibly imagine. I, it's not me. I have a really, really strong sense of urgency. You know, um, I have no patience whatsoever, even today. You know, I have none. Um, but what I do have is that I have, a, I have a, a strong need and a strong desire to get the job done. You know, and I think that that helps me. You know, do the job that I currently have. I worked as a timeshare salesman for a period of time. That was a lot of fun, but there was just no, there was nothing pat, there was no, nothing inspiring about that job. 
I wasn't serving anybody, you know. Um, when the opportunity presented itself to work for a place like Good Landing, to work in the, the field of addiction, I mean, to me, it was a no-brainer. You know, I took a, a $40,000 pay cut to, to work in this industry. Um, th- that didn't matter to me. You know, that just didn't matter. I was doing something that I loved, and I was doing something that I was passionate about. Um, I'm passionate about it for, for obvious reasons. You know, my life looks like this today instead of the walking dead man that I was 13 years ago. Uh, and I get to share that story of hope with countless people on a daily basis, you know. Um, and I get to do it with some pretty awesome people too, you know. The, the individuals that I've crossed paths with uh, over the years that, that work in this industry are incredible. There's some real scumbags too, y'all. There really are, you know, but there's some amazing individuals um, that, that truly have a heart for this and have passion for, for serving this community. Um, and I'm so blessed that I get to do that. Um, I do want to take as much time as I need to to answer some questions that you guys might have. Um, I don't care what it is. I'm an open book, whether it's about my own personal experience. If it has something to do with work, I'm happy to answer that too. Um, if you don't want to talk in front of a group of people, I completely understand that. This is not my favorite thing to do. I really don't love getting up in front of you know 20 people and 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 really talking about anything, you know. So if you don't want to do that either, I completely understand. If you want to pull me aside after, then then feel free to do that. Um, and that's all I have for you guys tonight. Yeah. So you're asking about, so is he staying clean in prison or he's not staying clean in prison? Okay, he's not. And he's calling you and he's remorseful about that. And he, he wants to and do he something different. Where he does really, really well. Mm-hmm. And then he gets sucked back into that thing and then he gets really mad at himself. And then he, you know, so I don't know how to encourage him to. Yeah. Know. Yeah. I mean, I hear what you're saying and I, and I know that, I mean, that's something that's really tough. Um, Right. All this idle time. Yeah. Even IOP has just started back, and that's two days a week. I don't think he's getting out of that. Right. There's no ministries. There's nothing. So. Right. Um, you know, some really wise people told my parents um, when I was still out there using, they said, there's nothing you can do to save him. And I know that's probably really hard for you to hear, you know. But, <clears throat> and the reason I get emo- emotional talking about that is because I didn't even share about this, but 
the moment the consequences became so severe for me um, was the moment that my family told me when I called them from jail and said, you're on your own. You know? And, I'm, and again, I'm not, telling you to, I'm not telling you to do that. You know? That, that's not for me to tell you. All I can do is just share my very own experience. You know? Um, when they did that, the consequences became very, very real. And I started to take a real long look at my life and say, okay, what, what do I want here? Because I don't have a backup plan anymore. Because it's not Carol and Steve Jolly anymore. You know? They communicated to me very early on that, Rush, if you want recovery, we will be your biggest supporters. But if you're not engaged in, you know, actively in your recovery, then we're done with you. And, uh, and that was just my experience. You know? I would just say lean on the people in, this, in these rooms. You know, because I'm sure that there are countless people in this room that have been through the exact same thing, you know, with, with their kids. Al-Anon is a great resource, you know. Um, have, you, have you gone through the 12 steps in Al-Anon? No, we were going to get back into that, but then we weren't having meetings in person. Right. It's all Zoom, and that, to me, I just have a hard time with that. It doesn't seem like I can... Well, get with me after the meeting. I know somebody named Jennifer Crawford who would absolutely love to hear from you. Yeah. I'd like to hear a little bit about your program and just kind of who it's for and is it sure. residential and just kind of... Of course, yeah, absolutely. So Good, Good Landing is a place. Um, we're located in Gwinnett County, Georgia. We have a clinical facility there um, uh, uh, based out of Decula. We have been open since uh, November of 2017. The owner is a man named Trey Lewis, and I have known him for around 20 years now. Um, him and I have a very, very interesting background. So I met him in that first treatment center that I told you guys about tonight. Um, we actually went on to leave that treatment center together and did some really, really dark things. <laughs> and then disconnected and reconnected you know, many, many years later, later after we had both you know, become sober again. Um, but I say all that just to say that he's probably one of the best dudes that I've ever known. Um, he, uh, and I say that just in the way that he lives his life, the, the husband that he is to his wife, the, the father that he is to his kids. Um, I was in his wedding. He's been there f- through the years for me. When my ex and I parted ways, that was really, really difficult time, and, uh, and he was there to kind of help me through that. Um, he has a heart for this. He was an IV methamphetamine user for a number of years. And, uh, and I think, you know, the goal for us is, is that we want to help each and every individual that walks through the doors of Good Landing walk into long-term recovery. Like, we're not interested in repeat business. Um, we want to help people get it right the first time. Um, it has everything to do with the relationship with God. That's at the forefront of everything that we do. We're faith-based. We're also a clinical program. Um, we're licensed by the state for state for PHP and IOP levels of care, and then we also have a separate housing component. Um, we uh, we believe in treating the whole person, so mind, body, and spirit. We have a full physical fitness program that is led by a certified personal trainer, um, which is really just kind of a cool thing that um, that Trey decided to do 
fitness has always been a huge part of my recovery. It's already always been a huge part of, of Trey's recovery as well. Um, but I mean, even down to, to every last detail, like, you know, the personal trainer that, that we have on staff there, like, it's not just some guy that we hired like off the street. His son was in active addiction and committed suicide three years ago, you know, so it's an opportunity for him to come in and just kind of give back. And, and so that's what we do. We uh, utilize group therapy as well as individual therapy. Um, we have some different activities on the weekends. Um, people can work in our program. Um, we can help people get jobs. We have a leadership development program for those that are interested in working in the field of addiction You know, after they graduate the program. Um, we pr- provide transportation to and from the clinical facility on a daily basis. And uh, um, we work with many different you know, programs in the, in the area as well. Um, mostly residential programs and detox facilities. Um, we're going to be a little bit more of a longer-term program. I know I mentioned that we're 90 days, but there are people that can you know, stay, stay with us for up to a year and a half. Yeah. And it's residential? Uh, no, no. Well, we, we have kind of a residential component, but we can't um, market ourselves as a residential program, if that makes sense. So we ha- we're licensed for PHP and IOP levels of care. So what that equates to is, is PHP is 25 hours of clinical care per week, and then IOP is 10 hours of cl- clinical care per week. And then we have separate housing, which has 24-hour you know, monitoring. We have, actually have live-in staff members at each location. And do you um, dual diagnosis? Do you address both mental health and So we're not licensed for mental health, um, but we do have a psychiatrist on staff. And so we are set up to deal with you know, some of the anxiety, depression, mood disorders. As long as somebody's stable when they get to us, we can usually work with, with that kind of thing. And just in what ages? Uh, 18 and up. 18. Okay, yeah. thank you. And men and women, we're also gender-specific as well, meaning that the, the groups don't overlap. The girls have their own groups, and the, the guys have their own groups. And I'd like to talk with you more. Thank you. Of course. To it, we're, we, our son's trying to get in there, and he's been accepted, but he's not there yet. Um, but we were, as we were looking at that, we were on our way home from a trip, and we just decided to drive there. And so we just pulled up, and they welcomed us and gave us a tour of the building and their praise area and the, the workout area and all their meeting rooms. And um, we were very impressed, and, and we liked the idea. Our son's dual diagnosed also. And so we, want, we liked the idea that there'd be you know, treatment there with them. But... Um, and then their housing is, you know, they have apartments that are, I don't know, 15 minutes away. Exactly, yeah. You know, they have different types. And, you know, they have, a, like, a supervisor in, in each of the apartments also. Right. And, and they help them. And they have, if you're doing their programs, they have their transportation van that the guys get in or the gals get in separately. And they go, and then they're... They can be together only. I think it's a church function or whatever. But right, just the idea of that they were open because there's some places you go to, and it's like, oh, you don't have an appointment. What are you doing here? That type of stuff. But they were very open. So, well, you're on my list to call. So it's just a blessing that you're here. So. Okay, great. I'd love to hear from you. Absolutely. How's your relationship with your brother now? Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. Um, he's older. He's four years older. Yeah, he loves God. He's uh, he's always loved God. 
his relationship with God is probably one of the most inspiring things that that I've ever seen. Um, and uh, yeah, he's actually a so my brother's kind of a math whiz. He's just super, super intelligent. No common sense at all, but really, really intelligent. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> if you have both, then just stay away from me. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's a great guy. He's a math teacher um, at a, a high school in downtown Atlanta. And uh, and yeah, I mean, we just we have a great relationship. Um, it's. Uh, it's been a little strange over the last couple of years. Our father passed away last January, and so that's been challenging. But it's also, I think, been somewhat of a motivator, a motivator for him and I to just to make sure that we're you know in touch regularly, and that uh, that we're in each, o- each other's co- uh, company on a regular basis as well. So, but yeah. Is he at Crystal Ray? Say again. Is he at Crystal Ray? The high school at Crystal Ray? No. Okay. No, I don't even know the name of it. I probably should, but that doesn't ring a bell, though. I feel like I've heard the name before. Yeah. Rose, you had mentioned in your testimony that you're still dealing with some anger issues. Yeah. Is it anger issues as a result of the addiction that you were in and the lack of forgiving yourself or something totally different? You know, that's a good question. Um, (laughs) I think it's just a result of... um, just being discontent at times, you know? Um, and also, you know, I've noticed that I see issues, you know, with anger, with irritability, things of that nature when I'm not taking as good a care, care of myself as I should be, you know? And you might ask what that looks like. Um, it might look like me isolating a little bit too much, you know, for my friends and my family at times. Um, it might look like like this underlying resentment that I have that I haven't dealt with, you know, whether it's, um, you know, with a friend or a family member or whatever the case may be. Um, and, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier that, you know, fitness has always been a big part of my, my recovery. That's a huge outlet for me. Um, I've always been very, very high-strung, as I mentioned before, just very impatient. Um, and when I don't have that outlet, you know, again, and I, when I look at fitness, um, I look at that as a almost a means of therapy, you know. So if I'm not getting in the gym and, and just kind of getting some of that stuff out, then uh, I think there tends to be kind of a buildup. And uh, so, yeah. So, um, and also, it could be a lack of meetings, you know, going to meetings and talking about what's going on, you know. And over the last couple of years, going to meetings has been really, really challenging, you know. My home group went to, to Zoom meetings for about a year and a half, and they just went back to normal here recently. Um, so that's been very challenging to get to some meetings. And uh, so, yeah, if I'm taking good care of myself, then it's typically not a problem. And if I'm not, then it's a struggle. Yeah. You made a comment about uh, lying and manipulation and not being truthful, and now you've completely switched. Was that something that happened suddenly? Because, you know, what we experience with the addiction is is the extreme manipulation, the untruthfulness, and everything, that, that it's becoming a skill, a learned skill. Coping skill. But it's so... 
Right. Yeah. And how does that stop <laughs> overnight? Um, God, that's that's the question right there. How does it stop overnight? Um, I don't have that answer, unfortunately. You know, what I do know is what happened to me, and uh, and what happened to me is is that you know I always had this idea that if I could just hit a bottom low enough that I could just be done with dope forever. And and that's the the delusion that we live under. Because there's not a bottom low enough to to make that po- a, a reality. The only thing that can keep us sober on a daily basis is is the things that we do on a daily basis. It's um the constant engagement and surrender um you know with God. Um and I have to do that. I mean, I have to do that on a daily basis. That's part of, of my morning routine is getting on my knees and saying, all right, boss, I don't know what you'd have me do today, but I just pray that you just show me you know, what you want me to do and who you want me to serve in the process. I don't want to put any drugs or alcohol in my body. And, uh, and I just pray for your guidance and direction and, and whatever else I've got, got going on that day. I read a devotion, and then I usually take 10, 15, possibly even 20 minutes, and I just sit there and I just sit quiet. You know, with my own thoughts, um, and that is a way for me to connect. You know, with that power on a daily basis. Um, when I think specifically about the manipulation and the lying, um, for me, that happened by seeing the bottom that I hit and realizing that that bottom wasn't enough to keep me sober. That the manipulation. And the lies and the embarrassment and the sham, shame that I was unwilling to communicate to other people is what eventually took me back out, you know. And, uh, and today I think I just look at it as, as something, I mean, it just, my life depends on it today. I know that if I keep those secrets and I'm, and I'm not honest about the things that are going on in my life, that there is the potential that I'm going to go back to, to drugs and alcohol. And I'm just not willing for that to happen today. So I just, I don't lie. And if I do, I don't, I don't lie for long. <laughs> I get honest about it pretty quick. So, I thank you for sharing your, your story. If you were uh, going to advise someone on taking others through the 12 steps, what, what advice would you give them? On taking somebody else through the 12 steps? Yeah. If you were going to use your own, say, for instance, I, I, a lot of what you talked about I can relate to for sure. So if you were going to, I don't know, spend time with addicts and, and try to connect with them or take them through the 12 steps, you've done it a lot. Do you have any takeaways yeah, I mean, it's that's the easiest question of all time. The instructions are so clear-cut in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Like, you literally can't screw it up, you know? So you just open the book, and you just get started, and you just go word for word, and you go through that process, and you do what it says through all through all 12 uh, proposals. And uh, and it's amazing, because what happens at the end of it is... is uh, it's just a complete and total transformation, you know, for somebody that does it honestly. Um, 
and genuinely and goes through that 12-step process. It's, it's an experience to be had. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about some mental health issues and also with addiction. You know, I think sometimes that's where we're always balancing back and forth. And, and you, like, you know, the big book's great on the AA side, but sometimes we always struggle. Is it, is it are they using alcohol or is it the, their, their mental state that's causing back and forth? You know, and do you do anything on the mental health side? Or, you know, I mean, because the big book will help you work the steps on staying, staying sober. Right. But then there's the other side. If you have mental issues that are depression or things, how do you keep out of that elephant or monster? So that's a good question. Um, first of all, I am not qualified to help somebody with their, with their mental health conditions. Um, I believe that I think I can kind of help guide somebody, you know, to, to who they need to go speak with. But I believe that there are highly qualified individuals out there that are, you know, kind of based on the circumstances that are, um, you know, can help with that kind of thing. Um, I mean, just an example, you know, one of my closest friends you know, when I hear her give an AA talk, you know, the way that she talks about the steps, the way that she talks about the whole process and sponsoring people and, and just what she went through, you know, in that transition from, a, from active addiction to recovery is, is so inspiring to me. Um, and it almost just seems as though, like, like she just has it completely together in all facets of her life. Yet here she is in the midst of full-blown trauma therapy you know her own trauma therapy she pays somebody $200 an hour four times a month to go down that path with them to investigate um, you know some of the things that she struggles with you know and, uh, and, and and honestly I mean I knew even before watching her go through that that there was some real value there but, I mean, that has just really brought it to the surface for me, you know, watching her go through that. And it's inspired me, you know, to want to do that in my life as well, you know. Um, so I do think that there's a ton of value there. Um, I don't think that one can be ignored. Um, and uh, But, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk with you further about that too, you know, one-on-one if you want. Yeah. Great. Thank you.